0: So did you catch it? As the scripture was being read, did you catch one of the most frightening things St. Paul ever, ever wrote? Why not rather be wrong? Personally, I could give St. Paul 1,001 reasons why I would not rather be wrong. And then if he wants to stay and have lunch, I'll give him another 1,001 reasons why I would rather not be wrong. And at the top of my list of reasons... And forgive my language, but all little kids are in Sunday school. Being wrong sucks. It hurts. It's painful. It's unfair. It causes severe suffering. It's unjust. Etc. 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 But right here, in writing, St. Paul says, why not rather be wrong? And this is not Paul looking for an answer, by the way. This is what they call a rhetorical device. (laughs) He is very clearly stating that the Christian answer to being wronged is not getting even, is not seeking a form of human justice, is not exacting revenge. It is imitating Christ. Now, I know this exploration of Corinthians, this entire series, has not been easy. And I am well aware that the last few weeks have been especially challenging. Believe me, no one has been more challenged than myself as the truth of Paul's teachings become ever more clear. That to be a Christian is to live like Jesus Christ. But I want to remind everyone that for Paul, the imitation of Christ is a response to the gospel of grace. It is not a mandatory payment to receive grace. It's important to remember as we go through this series. Jesus said, follow me, not so that we would become lovable to him, but that because we are so lovable to him as we are, the imitation of Christ is the reward, so to speak. It is the gift of grace to live like. See, there is this thing called glory theology. Okay, And this is important. Glory theology is the idea that God is present in victory. That when we overcome all our troubles, and all our struggles, and all our fears, and our pains, there is God. And that is his will for us. So we transact with him. We barter with him. We do all the right things. We say all the right things. And then we expect the reward of victory. But then you have Jesus's and Paul's and Peter's And John's theology, the theology of the cross. Which says, in fact, that God is present in the cross. God is present in our sufferings. God is present in our lives just the way they are. And when we imitate Him, when we understand and embrace our lives as they are, even when we are suffering, from being wronged, or from illness, or from relational breakdown, or whatever causes us to suffer, when we embrace our lives in those moments of suffering, we somehow begin to participate in this very mystery. And there and only there do we find life. We find the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We find peace. The very things theology of glory always promises but can never ever deliver. See, Jesus meant it when he said he is the way. He meant it. He wasn't lying. Living his way is the way. The redemption we seek, the power to live life to the fullest despite its messiness, this is all part of the imitation of Christ. So while I know Paul's letter to the Corinthians gets really intense, I think it's essential that we as a community continue to explore it with profound honesty and let it speak deep into our lives. Because this is the most wonderful invitation of all. God has set us free. Let us learn then who and what Christ was, so that we might truly imitate him and enjoy the freedom that he died to give us. Of course, the obvious question then is how does being wronged bring us freedom? Saint Peter really helps explain the magnificence of Paul's teaching here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. Which, on a side note, is rather incredible. Because when you read the story of Peter pre-crucifixion, there is no indication as to what Peter was going to become post-crucifixion. But that's the very mystery I just spoke of. See, Peter finally understood imitating Christ was life. He finally understood that. And as he surrendered to that reality, he discovered the fullness of the Spirit already living in him. Giving him all the strength and the courage to live the imitation of Christ. See, that's the thing. We want to live this life, but we don't realize that's what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in us. It's help us live like Jesus. And remember what the life of the apostles looked like. Remember, we saw this to this very. This is Paul talking about all the apostles, including Peter. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless, we work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. No, not Peter. Pre-crucifixion, he carried around a sword, and when someone said something wrong, he got their ear off. But post-crucifixion, the imitation of Christ, this was Peter's life. And so Peter wrote this to help us understand Paul. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Just stop for a second and and let that sink in. That's Peter, the apostle, telling us to follow in Christ's footsteps. Since Christ also... You see... The crucified Christ, servant of all, is where we're called to go. But then look what Peter says. So he talks about Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was he deceit in his mouth. He did not revile while suffering. He had no threats, but kept entrusting himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the Shepherd and Guardian of your souls. Is there anything more hopeful and comforting than that imagery? of the shepherd and guardian of our souls. Well, where is that? In the imitation of Christ. Self-sacrificial living for others. It's beautiful. That's where we find the shepherd and guardian of our souls that we're looking for so much. Peter continues, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit... Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. This is Peter. Post-Crucifixion. This is the imitation of Christ. Peter. For you were called to the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. This is... Imitating Christ is the blessing. I know this is so hard. But do you see even though it's so radically different. That's the gospel. How amazingly beautiful this is. The imitation of Christ is the blessing. You know, we're always looking for a way out of our pains and our struggles and our torments. But maybe it's in them that we'll find what we're looking for. And Peter continues... Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. This is enormous truth that I know goes against our desire for glory theology. But I, I'm just, it's just what the Bible says because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God, to live like Christ. Hmm. Wow. So Paul says, why not rather be wrong? When we are wrong, we are participating in the life of the divine. Was anyone more wrong than this? Honest? We have to believe this is God. <clears throat> we get to participate in this. Every time we are presented with pain and suffering. And in this world, that's a given. Ben Franklin said we can be assured of taxes and death. He missed one. We can just be assured of suffering. And our suffering takes on an all different kind. Everyone here has suffering in their life. It's all different. Why not be wrong? So at this point in the letter, as Paul gets here, why not be wrong? You can finally sense his total exasperation with the Corinthian believers. The guy sin was bad enough. Their response to it was even worse. We've been through this, right? We spent a few weeks on this. Their response to it was even worse because it was dividing the community. Then he has to, then he lets them know he's fed up with their malice and wickedness, which we spent last week on. Then he has to take them to task for purposefully misinterpreting his first letter. We're going we're to get to this in a second. Okay? But this idea of a Christian brother taking a Christian brother to court pushes Paul over the proverbial edge. And he absolutely lets loose with all sorts of verbal spanking. This is an absolute verbal smackdown Paul gives them in this part of chapter 6. And it culminates in this classic, I say this to your shame. That's brutal. When, When we get there. Okay, let's set the scene. So, one Christian has defrauded another, and that Christian has taken him to court. Now, some scholars suggest this is the same guy sleeping with his, mother, his father's wife and the father's taking him to court. Which makes sense because in those days, marriage was often much more about the accumulation of wealth and property than, it had, than anything else. Which is going to be very interesting to look at marriage in those days when we get there when Paul starts teaching on marriage. Because we had this idea that Our idea of marriage is an ancient idea of marriage. It's not. it's, It's not at all. It's a relatively new idea of marriage. And that can help us when we get to Paul and understand what he's talking about. Okay? But anyway, I don't think it really matters who has gone to court here because we all know what being wronged is. Being wronged is universal. Okay? Now, another quick side note. Paul is not here addressing the issue of believers and non-believers in court. He's not addressing that here. So, <laughs> you've got to come up with your own idea on that. <coughs> However, for me, I think Paul's question, why not rather be wrong, sort of covers that too. But again, that's you know, between you and God and, and perhaps some other scriptures that you'll find. So, the first thing Paul does is he takes them to task for their lack of eschatology... Or their bogus eschatology, their understanding of end times. Okay? He says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Witherington notes for us the Corinthians' problems arose not just from bad ethics or bad social values, but from bad theology which affected all worldly affairs and matters, including sexual and legal matters. They had an inadequate, if not non-existent, future eschatology, or at least future eschatology was not shaping their values in decision-making. In other words, if, if they are really living with an eternal perspective, what's the deal with taking each other to court? When the real kingdom comes, we will be sitting, Paul says, as judges in the courts, judging even angels. So if it is our future to sit and judge the world, caution here, future, future, this is after God comes. I know we would love Paul to give us the AOK okay to start judging the world now, but that's just not our job now. Okay, that's coming. That's future. But if that's the case then why would we ask that very world to judge us now? Right? But again, be careful. This year, don't use this to set up a detailed understanding of end times. Okay? This is not Paul writing novels about what is going to happen at the end of the world. This idea of judging angels, this, is a, this was a common saying that Paul was probably incorporating into his own writing. Okay, So don't don't start writing novels based on these verses about what the end times are going to look like. Here's what Paul is doing. Paul's point in using this imagery is saying to us, our whole living should be predicated on a very real hope in God's kingdom coming and living to usher that in. When we do not live with an eternal perspective, okay, day-to-day issues become mountains. And that's when we end up living in ways that don't look like Jesus Christ at all. I have been through hell the last 12 weeks. Some of you know this, some of you don't. It doesn't matter whether you know the details or not. This teaching of Paul here has been the only thing that's gotten me through. When I forget that there is a kingdom coming, then I want to react in all my humanity. I wanted to pull out knives, guns, a couple rocket (laughs) launchers, It's been bad. But an eternal perspective changes everything. It fills you with hope. Like that I, that song I played at Offering, I, I weep during that. that. That line, I am the least of all your problems here, but I am most in need of hope. That, that, that's what eternal perspective does. No matter what our life is like, we know it's not the end of the story. The Bible says love wins. That's the end of the story. Evil goes away. And it allows you with this e- eternal perspective to love your enemies. Whatever's in your life, I'd encourage you. Get your eschatology in order. That doesn't mean the details, just the fact that God's kingdom's coming. I don't know, maybe it's your finances. Ben Shipman has cystic fibrosis. Some of us are losing marriages, or worse and worse. An eternal perspective, keep living like Jesus right through it. Let's get our eschatology in order. And then all those things, you know, we get worked up about. You know, we hit the airwaves, the blogging sites, and Facebook. We, we don't have to get so worked up. They're not going to last. Honest. So even if you're thinking, worst case scenario, it's not going to be the end of the story. So that's the beauty of this. Even if the Mayans are right, who cares? <laughs> it's better the next day. What was that thing we saw yesterday? I was in some restaurant. They're having like a zombie party they're having on December like party. And <laughs> the next day they're having a That's and it. Party. Zombie parties the next day. It was so great. I was laughing. And I was just laughing. I'm like, no, my future does not include zombies. <laughs> so he leaves his eschatology, and then he goes straight to their arrogance. I love this. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brother? Now, remember who he's talking to. These are arrogant believers that think they know everything. Can't you just... Paul is annihilating them here. Just, I told you it's a verbal smackdown. He's like, you can't even figure this out, you smart people. And then the shame thing, Remember? This is really interesting, because earlier on in the letter, remember, what, he, what did he say earlier on? I don't write this to shame you. But now, he is so furious, he wants to shame them. But remember what we talked about. Shame works in this culture. It doesn't work enough. Trust me, Try to shame someone into doing the right thing, it's going to come back to bite you. It doesn't work. If we're going to be Christians that want to follow Paul here, we need to find other ways to help people overcome what they're struggling with. Okay? This is love. In that culture, shame worked. It worked. That's the point. Find something to help our brothers and sisters overcome. Okay. Then he gets to the heart of the Why not rather be wrong? If you're going to call yourself Christians, act like Jesus Christ. See, this is the consistent theme of the letter. We've been on this now 20 weeks, and that's what keeps popping up. People in Corinth had reduced Christ to some saving agent. Some magical door to a better world. Going through the door and then doing whatever they want. It's not unlike this illustration that many of us here are familiar with from our upbringing. All Jesus is, is a bridge over the fires of hell. Now, to be fair, to be fair, I think I get what the designers of this illustration of the gospel were trying to say. But unfortunately, it took on a life of its own, and this became the gospel. The entire gospel. Instead of one particular, possibly helpful metaphor of what the gospel might mean in part. Okay? And so now, so so I'm giving credit to to whoever came up with this illustration, fine. But now what happens when this gets reduced, and this is the entire story, we think, and this is what I grew up thinking, that being a Christian is intellectually consenting to this. Saying, okay, I agree. But going on and living in ways that do not look like Jesus Christ at all. At all. And worse, we end up justifying that behavior that doesn't look like this. And we end up justifying malice and wickedness and greed and gossip and slander and idolatry and dishonesty based on a form of Christian patriotism that is far away from the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul writes what he does in verse 11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or greedy or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard, or a swindler or not even to eat with such a one. See, in his first letter, he must have told them all this. Remember, 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians. The first letter, we don't know where it is. But he must have told them this, and then in trying to maintain their un like Christian lifestyles, they argued, well, Paul, if we do that, we, we can't even be in the world. <laughs> and I'm sure Paul wanted to write back, no kidding, Sherlock. <laughs> but there was enough sarcasm in his letter already, so we probably told, probably edited that out. said, hey, Timothy, don't write that, write this instead this is what I was saying. This is what I was saying. But, be careful. Remember the context of this verse. Now, for some of our visitors, I'm sorry, but we spent three or four weeks on the context of this, so it's going to be hard, but you'll have to go back, or if you're even interested. If we don't remember the context, this verse will become something it's not. So, context. He is dealing with an extreme situation with this man in the community. It's extreme for two reasons. One, it's extreme because, excuse me, his sin is so gr- sexually grotesque that even a very highly sexually tolerant non-Christian society tolerates it. That's bad. But for Paul, it's ex- what's worse for Paul is it's extreme... Because some Christians are using it, are justifying it, sorry, using bogus theology. That's why it's so extreme to Paul. This list must be understood in that context. It has to be. By the way, Paul uses a ton of these lists in his writings, and there are a ton of these lists in the ancient world, on on vices and what have you. This list he probably tailored to Corinth. Okay. This is not Paul pointing out for us persons genuinely struggling with these particular sins in their lives. Okay? If that was really the case, if Paul is really pointing out for us people in our communities genuinely struggling with these sins, then there's no one left in the church to associate with. Do you see what I mean? Let's face it, everyone at one time or the other is struggling with these sins. Okay? Struggling is part of the Christian journey. We all have... See, Theology of Glory has so much influence in our lives, we don't even realize it. We all have this idea that if we're really good Christians, we are sin-free, and we have no problems in our lives, and God takes care of it all. I, I don't know any of those people. Oh, I know them from a distance, but once you get to know anybody, they, what? Struggling, doubt, despair. This is all part of the Christian journey. In fact, Luther said, Luther suggested that doubt and despair are when God meets us most intimately. We always want to get past our doubts and our despair. And Luther's point is, you know what? God is a God of mercy. And the second we realize how much mercy we need, that's when we end up being very intimate with God. When we throw ourselves on His mercy. So, let's not take this verse and make this Paul's command to police our community. to police people who are genuinely struggling to live Christian lives, even if maybe they fail more than they succeed. Let's not do that. We're all stumbling on towards Christ. We're all messy. I'm a mess. And Paul gets that more than anyone. Remember that great video Richard put together with us? We watch it every now and then. I was going to do it this morning, but he calls these Corinthians saints. It's right in there, the first chapter we look at. We're all messed. So this deeper understanding that we have been exploring for the last four weeks of First Corinthians five, it frees us from the tyranny of hyperlegalism. And that's a good thing to be freed from. Trust me. God bless you if you've never been prisoner to the tyranny of hyperlegalism. But, and this is a big one, it also opens the doors for us if we are courageous enough to a much more terrifying examination of our own Christianity and our own Christian theology and our own Christian lives. You see, Paul was furious Rightfully so, not that people were struggling with this list of sins, but that people were actually living this list and calling it Christian based on some twisted theology. And Paul says, time out. This is what Corinth looks like. The church is to be an alternative to Corinth. I don't care, Paul says, if you are messy and are stumbling and are failing as you try to live out Christ's likeness. But as soon as you say, this is Christ's likeness, Houston, we have a problem. I love that. I haven't done it in months. Come on. (laughs) But listen, this is why I am always suggesting that this reading of Paul is more terrifying than reading Paul this part of Paul's letter as a mandate for hyper-legalistic church discipline of the struggling sin. That's easy. That's easy. Because that's just a matter of making sure we put sins in order and then we just kick out and judge those sins that are not part of our lives. Because those sins are obviously worse. See, that's, that's simple. But this is much more terrifying. Because if we are honest with ourselves, we know we live in a time and place when the church and ourselves have sanctioned greed and malice and idolatry as good. And I'm not being melodramatic and I'm not being cynical. See, greed is not just open covetousness and it's not outright stealing either. Greed is also participating in a form of consumerism that creates market conditions for exploitation and oppression of others. I'm guilty. And based on what I see most people wearing today, we're all guilty. Malice. Malice is malice, whether we're defending the truth or not. And idols? Billy Graham's grandson, Tulian Javidjian, writes, Idols are much more than statues our ancestors bowed down to. Anything that we build our lives on, anything that we lean on for meaning or identity, anything that we hope will bring us freedom, can be an idol. And see, when we embrace a theology that justifies these things, according to St. Paul, that makes us people that shouldn't be associated with It's easy to take chapter 5 and 6 of Paul and excommunicate people much harder to take chapter 5 and 6 of Paul and realize he's talking to us, isn't it? But as Fee writes, from Paul's point of view, the only way we can be a viable alternative to the world is to be in the world, but not of I think it all starts with this question. Why not rather be wrong? When we can accept as true and embrace as our destiny the depths of Christ's command to love others, including our enemies, there will be no way we could ever theologically justify any sin. And the further we live into genuine love, the further we get away ourselves from even wanting to justify our sins. Because how do you justify sinning against those you love? I know how we sin against those we love. But when we really love them, we usually feel really horrible about it after. But justifying it, that's totally different. But maybe that's just it. Just like Paul doesn't really focus on the sins, maybe we shouldn't either. Because focusing on sin is never going to change anything. Ever. Love changes everything. See, the, the cross saved us. Not us cleaning ourselves up. That didn't save us. We tried that. didn't work. That's why God had to die. So that's the best part of this whole thing. Yeah, we might be greedy, we might be malicious, and we might be idolaters, but thank God we can come to this table and thank Him for what He did for us. Love, unconditional, unashamed, relentless, is the only thing that does work. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather choose love? them